0: Welcome to this special podcast series on creating healthy workplaces, brought to you by Wellcosa, the Wellness Council of South Africa. My name is Dr. Martin Kombring, founder and director of Wellcosa and a wellness strategist. This series of podcasts features international renowned experts in the field of health and wellness in the workplace. And these speakers will impart their knowledge, insight and wisdom in the field of workplace wellness to listeners around the world. So be sure to subscribe to our podcast. You will learn from international workplace experts about the latest insight, knowledge, and innovations on how to create healthy workplaces for all. Good day and welcome to another edition of the Well Workplace Summit. I'm very pleased and honored to have with me today Larry Chapman. Um, Now, Larry is the President and CEO of the Chapman Institute and over the past 35 years he has been involved in the development of over a thousand health management, employer wellness and health cost management projects in both private and public employer settings. His current areas of professional concentration include population health management, wellness and behavior change technology, worksite wellness promotion, integrated prevention, incentive technology, and the use of innovative approaches to health management. Larry is the founder and a current director for the well program. He has also published over 190 articles and over 100 columns, contribute, uh, contributed chapters to four major books and authored 13 other books on health management related topics. And the vision of the Chapman Institute is to become the best known most highly regarded training certification and problem solving resource for the worksite wellness field. Today, he'll be talking to us on how to drive and increase participation in worksite wellness programs. So without further ado, Larry,
1: welcome to the summit. Well, thank you, Martin, I appreciate it very much and appreciate the opportunity to talk to you and to your listeners and those that are interested in the field of worksite wellness or workplace wellness and um, the ability for us to help people be as healthy and well as they possibly can.
0: Fantastic. Now, um, you know, how to drive and increase participation in worksite wellness is a very um, interesting topic, but sometimes seen as quite a difficult um, uh, um, aspect to achieve within a wellness program.
1: Well, it is, and I think it's, uh, it actually is at the heart of, of whether wellness programs produce the results that they have the potential to achieve. And I think uh, as, as we all uh, look at some of the literature and the resources and some of the science and peer review literature uh, around wellness, there's obviously ways of doing it that work and ways that don't necessarily work. So that's what our I think our focus uh, in a sense needs to be in our in this discussion right now. Um, Should I go go ahead and just begin in some of the content that we'd like to share? Would that be reasonable, Martin? Uh, Let's talk talk also, by the way, uh, I'll be really speaking from some slides that Martin, I understand, will make available uh, to everyone who's listening. So uh, as we go through some of those, I'll try to capture and and put together and add to uh, the information that we'd like to share around this topic of driving and increasing participation in wellness programs. First of all, uh, there are different ways of doing wellness. And and in the the WellCert program and in the Chapman Institute, we tend to talk about a feel-good wellness program, which is kind of fun and and an opportunity to bring these concepts uh, to the forefront for people. Uh, Not necessarily well-structured, well-organized, behaviorally sophisticated, but it's a feel-good kind of approach to wellness. Traditional wellness tends to be adding more opportunities for people but not necessarily installing or putting in the means to actually help people make long-term behavior change. And then we have the third kind of wellness, which is more results-driven wellness. And that's where we start to set up policies and we integrate with benefits and we, we uh, really kind of work on cultural norms in that population and work on ways of, of, of engaging people in a more powerful way. So those are the three major ways that we think of of doing wellness. The introductory feel-good, the traditional, which I tend to look at as a smorgasbord of options and alternatives where we're giving people lots of things that they can, they can take part in, but not necessarily setting up either tracking systems or engagement strategies or policy support or a lot of the things that you obviously will be hearing in other parts of the summit. And then the results driven is where we get a little more serious about this and say, let's put some resources and and actually put together the kinds of activities that are going to be effective. One of the participation wild cards uh, is really novelty. And that means that when we start a wellness program, we frequently see lots of people participating because the program is novel to them. They don't know what it's about. And we want to keep some of that novelty continuing to to draw people into the program. But what will usually happen, in my experience, is you can do one of these wellness programs for a group of employees. Some of them will take part in it. And we'll talk a little bit more about that as we talk about participation and its other dimensions. But oftentimes, it's the novelty that draws them. So we want to keep some new things happening, some fun things happening in these programs to be a general draw to people. But that wild card is oftentimes gives us an impression that we can do wellness in any way and will somehow continue to get people participating. But my experience has been after that novelty wears off, you usually see a dip in participation. And that's hmm. where we then have to step back and say what are the strategies that we want to employ to make sure more people continue to do wellness the next yep. graphic is uh is
0: headed now very sorry. sorry can i just interrupt there sorry sure
1: um i
0: i i i agree totally with you i've seen that as well that um you know the novelty approach in terms of bringing it into a company um Participation is really great then, but after a while it starts to dwindle. Um, so, so absolutely, um, that, that's one of the observations I, I've got made as well. The 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 the, the point that I want to make is just the the feel good wellness program, the the sort of the first step um, um, that people normally start to take. Um, have you noticed that there's a progression from the feel good to um, the second the traditional wellness and then to the um, results driven wellness or are there some companies that actually just dives in from uh, right at number three the results driven wellness program
1: it's a great question um what i've what i've found in terms of people's I- approach to wellness and, and i'm i'm talking uh, primarily about the u.s employer market although i have worked in seven other countries So I'll try to season some of my comments with some knowledge of some of these other countries. But in the U.S., what I would probably say is about 70 percent of employers who are doing wellness, I think, are stuck really at the feel good wellness model. They've kind of gotten into that. They don't want to spend a lot of money on it. They've kind of seen some success. So they're kind of stuck there. Um, frequently, though, those, those organizations that want to see more of the results will begin to evolve toward the traditional model. And then a few of them, I would say probably less than maybe 10% of the employers in the U.S. that are doing wellness. And we generally have about 90% of, well, of employers with over 50 employees uh, actively engaged in some form of wellness program. So it's we're really talking about those uh, that 50 and over uh, employer size and about 10 percent of their efforts being really oriented toward the results driven. So um, I have not seen any, you know, kind of an enormous movement from the, you know, from the feel good to uh, to or, or traditional to results driven. But the people who do the results driven tend to get very good results. Those are oftentimes the ones that are highlighted in our literature and are awarded things like the COOP Award, which identifies programs that have had peer review level evaluation of the effect of the wellness program on healthcare costs and health utilization, healthcare utilization. So uh, excellent, excellent question, but uh, it's it's not necessarily assumed that people will gravitate and move from left to right in terms of the feel good, traditional and results driven. This really goes back also to the goals and objectives that the uh, employer has around wellness. And frequently they have... You know, they haven't really made a, a, a explicit determination of what that is.
0: Right. And, of course, it's also um, financially driven for some companies to just stay on the, on the first level.
1: Yes. And I probably would say that my best experience in, in working with more than a thousand of these programs uh, is with those organizations that balance the humanitarian reasons for doing wellness with the financial reasons. So when those two are in balance, that tends to lead to the best outcomes in terms of long-term programming. So uh, I think think business people need to have an economic rationale for wellness alongside of their humanitarian rationale. Because Hmm. when business cycles change and organizations go through tight times, they frequently will look for places to cut costs. And they will often cut wellness program costs if they aren't seeing some other economic rationale for maintaining that program and or expanding it over time. So that's, the, that's been my experience in terms of, you know, having programs go through this uh, and need to have a balance between those two.
0: Yeah. Okay. Well, um, thanks for, for clarifying that. And, and please continue.
1: All right. And please, <laughs> you know, Martin, feel free, as I mentioned, jump in anytime. time. Be, be good Thanks to, to much, get your, your thoughts and your insights. Um, this, this next slide deals with typical participation ranges, and these are primarily around, again, the American market, employer market. There are roughly about, about 7.2 million employers in the U.S., so that's the that's the kind of the group that we're talking about here these just indicate the category of program activity and i won't go down the specifics of those but you can kind of see the range of things that you can do and then the expected participation ranges and these are kind of normal situations uh, i would probably say though that that in in the experience that i've had I would probably say about uh, somewhere around 20% of employees are generally intrinsically motivated for wellness. So these are the people that oftentimes come out when we put wellness programs on because they have already come to a recognition that they want to do something about that particular area. And then about 80% of employees generally are not very intrinsically motivated. So that's why we then start talking about incentives, which we're gonna be covering in another of our summit uh, areas of of, uh, interviews. So this idea that uh, the participation is going to be affected by that general level of intrinsic motivation that exists, plus how well we've, in a sense, put the program together to be able to be utilized. Now, a key question for all of us is, why don't people participate? Why does that 80% not choose not to do wellness programming sometimes when we just put a feel-good or traditional wellness program in place? And there are socially acceptable reasons that people will give you, and then there also are socially questionable reasons. So sometimes I don't share that with you, but the socially acceptable can be I'm too busy, I don't really need it, I'm healthy now, I don't have to worry about this. I don't trust you with the information that I have to give you about my health. I'm too tired. I get hassle about going by my supervisor. It's not fun enough. Those are all the kinds of things you generally will hear from people. Underneath hmm. the surface of that participation or lack of participation is I'm afraid of failing again. I'm too embarrassed. I look too fat. I'm too uncoordinated. I don't like the the company and I don't wanna do anything for them. Uh, It's my way of getting back at them. So there are lots of reasons, both the ones we can draw out of people and the ones that are actually operating underneath the surface. So Hmm. that's some of the reasons that I've found why people don't participate. And in fixing participation problems and participation problems, by the way, um, are is just, you know, you put on a wellness program, you get maybe 35% of your employees participating and you wonder why don't the other 65% come down and use this. So, uh, and this, by the way, is going to be more of a participation problem after that first year, two years, three years, four years of a program. So it's when the program is really becomes a fixture, it becomes kind of a normal part of the work environment. That's when we begin to see some of the drop off occur. So if I wanted to fix those participation problems, I wanna talk with as many users and non-users as I can, encourage their candor about why they don't participate. I wanna then put those list of possible participation problems together Sometimes if I'm in a big situation, well, you know, the largest group that I worked on is about 4.8 million people. So sure. you don't want to do anything with that large a population unless you've confirmed what you think problems are. So I can use a survey device to help confirm whether what is causing people not to participate. And then I can select my strategies. And Martin, any anything that you want to add or, or any uh, anything want to mention at this yeah. point? Yeah,
0: absolutely. Yeah. Um, I just wanted to find out the the, the 20% instinctive um, um, participation that, you, that you're talking about, um, have you seen over the years that the number is increasing?
1: I wish I could say yes. <laughs> OK. Um, you know, uh, I, I haven't seen necessarily that number be going up. And in fact, what I've seen it is actually going down. And in the u s, it's probably more of a saturation of this concept of wellness in other sectors, other parts of society, which then cause people to say, "Oh, yeah, it's just a wellness program." So uh, I would probably say that that number has probably declined. I wish it was was different. Now it is different in places where they've actually done more of a of an organized approach around wellness because i've I have lots of clients that are up in the ninety percent participation levels. And I don't think you'll ever get to 100, but you can certainly get up into the 90s and mid-90s if you really want to design a wellness program with some strong incentives, the ability to you know, kind of create a culture that supports it, uh, do a lot of the things that the literature basically tells us.
0: Right. And then what, what, what strategies do these companies actually use to increase their participation rate?
1: That's great. Uh, the participation strategies... And these I'm going to go through uh, you know, fairly quickly, but these are on one of the slides. And Good. first of all, the, the, some of the major strategies. And by the way, once I know what the reason that people are giving me that they're not participating, then I want to match my strategy against the reasons. And what we do in the WellSARP program is we actually try to help you with uh, designing surveys that will help you find the reasons and then pick the right participation strategies. So I think some of this will make sense as I go through the participation strategies that really help drive this level of use that you'd like to see. First of all, the first strategy is improving the program positioning. And that's the issue around the branding of my program and how that program is positioned in terms of its purpose and its intention with the population. So I can work on that to actually get better acceptance in my population. I may have not really assessed their interests very well. So I may not have really asked the right questions, and that's the second strategy. So I can get better at more accurately assessing what they are interested in doing in terms of improving their wellness. The third strategy I might use is to improve the program design. So I might shift from the feel good to a traditional or from traditional to results driven. And then as I improve that design of the program, it's going to reach more people. The fourth strategy is to do more to improve access. So I may not have really thought about, gee, those people that have childcare responsibilities and they've got to get home to pick up their kids. So I've then got to put this programming on a different part of the day. Or to improve language if I've got people that have different languages in my workforce. Um, If I have different locations that I'm using and maybe they're not as easy to get to. So that's an access improvement strategy. Next strategy is improving the promotional activities. So maybe I haven't done a good job of marketing the activity to the population. So then I have to step back and ask the question, what are my channels of communication? What's my messaging strategy? Have I done what I need to do in order to help people remember it and to retain that knowledge about it? Maybe it's the increasing the level of policy support. So people aren't seeing wellness showing up in other policies in my employee handbook or hmm. seeing it appear in different places in the work site. So I'm not getting a message back as an individual that this is important to management. I'd like to be a good employee. I'd like to do the things that my employer would like me to do. Uh, I see some of the value in it for me and I see the value for the employer. So maybe I haven't done a good, I good, a good uh, approach to policy integration maybe I haven't really helped my senior and mid-level managers to know that the wellness is important to the organization and to actually have them participating because as an employee, I'm kind of looking around and I don't see any managers showing up at these lunch and learns. (laughs) I don't, I don't see them, you know, kind of in the walking club. Uh, I don't hear them saying anything about it or being present when there are all hands meetings about it. So that's another one of the strategies that we can use to increase participation. Maybe I need to think about using more personal contact, and that's where we use wellness champions or wellness ambassadors, people who are volunteers who want to see more people involved in wellness lifestyles, and so they're out in the worksite And maybe I I need to use more of those folks to actually encourage people to attend different activities or to get active in terms of a gym activity or uh, show up at a preventive screening or get their flu shot or whatever the activity is. So that's that personal contact and utilizing more of that. The next strategy is using stronger incentives, and we'll be talking about that, Martin, and as you know, in another session. So we'll kind of hold off on kind of the, the, the depth around that area. I also can do some things to enhance cultural norms. So there are instruments that I can use to kind of see how strong the wellness norm is in my culture, and then I can do some things to kind of strengthen that. And sometimes those things are the just the informal programming I do. But I can also use some techniques called normative systems change where I actually go in informally work on those norms more directly. And those are Mm -hmm. cultural norms are kind of what we think other people think about our behavior and our engagement and wellness. Yeah. The Next area is we I can make a direct appeal. So maybe management needs to just say to employees, you know, our futures are linked together. Uh, You the employees or you 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 guys are doing what it is that our organization accomplishes. And so we would love it if you would take good care of yourself. And you can do that by participating in the wellness activities. So that's more of a direct appeal strategy. And then our final strategy is I can change the recruitment strategies that I have placed in my program, and I'll talk a little bit more about those in a moment. But let me just stop and, and ask you, Martin, any, any anything you want to ask about or, you know, deal with related to this, this area, yeah. this content yeah. area.
0: Yeah, thanks, Larry. Um, well, in, you know, in South Africa, we've got nine different Languages. So you can imagine that um, the cultural wow. norm aspect can be quite important for a company in South Africa to look at.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And that, that means I probably am not going to do as much. Maybe I'm not not going to choose as broad a range of, of targeted behaviors, uh, but I'm going to work on the behaviors in a way that help me uh, address that language barrier or potential language barrier for mm. some of the, the 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 employees that are involved or the the people that are involved. So excellent, you know, kind of a recognition of the challenge that you have mm. in your national setting uh, yeah. around those areas. So good.
0: And and then also um, the the participation um, from your point of view. Um, Does it always have to be voluntary or sometimes as a company can step in and say you have to participate? Does that
1: happen? Um, It happens. But let me let me just say uh, to you, I I have one of the clients I had over the years was the uh, U.S. Air Force. And and we actually got into a kind of a mandatory wellness program. And what I found from that experience was I don't think you want to make wellness mandatory. Now, you might make filling out a survey mandatory or you might make attending a uh, kind of a 20-minute briefing on why the wellness program is being offered. Um, Those are probably about the only things that I would want to make mandatory because what happens if we cross the line and we say to people, you have to exercise or you have to eat healthy uh, what normally occurs in, with human beings is they say, oh, yeah, well, I'm going <laughs> to do the opposite. And I actually had some bad results from, for, you know, getting people with seeing or feeling like we were forcing them into wellness. So my advice to you is if you're going to make something mandatory, make it something that people can do in a sense easily without risk in a safe way, but something that helps open up educational kind of concepts about wellness, but doesn't necessarily require the wellness activity itself. Um, I think what happens when we we begin to get too powerful in our voice about wellness is we tend to, to oftentimes uh, catalyze people's resentment or their uh, response. They're kind of, I'm um, you know, oh, yeah, I'm not going to do that. So um, that would be my advice based on my experience.
0: Fantastic. That's a really great advice. I mean, now we can see why you're, you're so um, well sought after in, in the U.S. Um, with your wellness efforts over the past 35 years and been putting all these things together and um, a wealth of information. Thanks, Larry. Please continue.
1: Very good. Well, thank you for that. Um, The changing recruitment strategy was the last participation strategy that I mentioned. And that is where our first option is use at will. People just use it whenever they want to. The second of four options is opt in. And that's where I say to people, you know, you need to tell us you're interested in this aerobic exercise program or a stretching opportunity or a uh, use of of uh, some videos that you might have access to or, you know, the the ability for us to provide different ways of doing things, that opt-in means I have to take an action. Opt-out means you're all in unless you tell me otherwise. And an example of that would be a coaching, a wellness coaching, where we say to to all employees, uh, you are in the coaching program, and, you know, unless you tell us you don't want it. And if okay. you, you know, if you don't want to have somebody helping you with a your own choice of which thing you want to work on, then let us know. You can opt out. So that's the third strategy. And these are progressively more aggressive at encouraging and leading and driving participation. The fourth option is when we require that it's for a incentive reward. And we'll talk more about that again in another session. But the idea that we basically say to people, if you want the goodies, if you want the reward, you're going to have to do X or Y. That's when we are become the most aggressive. And that's what causes the most participation. Our literature is also pretty, pretty clear that if people do not participate, they generally will not continue changing and maintaining the change. So we need some sort of ongoing participation for people to actually get better. The next area we're going to look at is the best drivers of participation. And I would probably say a well-branded, attractive program that kind of matches the organization's goals and their values. Good targeting. That's the, the second one. So I choose the right things to work on and the interventions that are linked to those targets are the right choices. They are the choices that this population, you know, can use and can utilize. The third of four best drivers is a significant financial incentive. And, you know, this is probably gonna be hard for many of you to deal with, is that I found we could get 95% of people actively engaged in wellness programming if we had something around $600 to $1,200 US attached to a set of wellness criteria. And the yeah. wellness criteria could be non-smoking status. It could be things like attending a workshop. It could be completing an online health module. It could be going through coaching, a whole variety of different kinds of criteria. But the idea is that there needs to be enough Financial incentive there to reach into that 80% that are oftentimes not intrinsically motivated. So Mm -hmm. that's the, that's the way generally I, the the best way I've found to actually get to 80, 90, 95% and maintain it. Now the longest client I had was 22 years. So 22 years of doing wellness. And we would not have been able to keep 90% of people actively engaged in wellness and produce a lot of health improvement and reduction in health care use and reduction in worksite injuries and workers' comp, disability, presenteeism kinds of things if we couldn't keep them actively involved. And then the use of wellness criteria, including a general participation incentive, was the best that I could come up with in all my clients to be able to to have high numbers of people participating. So this is a, uh, if you have participated in a minimum of five wellness program events since the first of the year, that would then qualify you for that criteria. And then the more criteria you got, the larger that financial incentive. And the best incentive we have in the US is linked to reduction in the employee share of their health care expense. And I know that's problematic for all of you or almost all of you because of the way in which we finance healthcare care in different national uh, nations and different systems. But the basic idea that we have in, in the U.S. is we want people to connect their individual lifestyle, wellness, behavior choices to the cost of what their health plan is. So I can give them a you know, lower out-of-pocket cost for their health plan if they, in fact, take good care of themselves. And so that's the basic alignment of the employer's incentives to reduce health care costs along with the, the employee's incentive in terms of both the lower cost health care, you know, uh, out-of-pocket or at the time of of payroll or premium deduction and the ability for them to see health improvements in their own health mm. any any uh question or anything martin uh, from your vantage point on these issues sure.
0: um Larry it's very clear um, that you that you stated very interesting and obviously um the 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 points that you mentioned covers a whole range of um Practices that can be be used to 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 manage the voluntary participation But 22 years with 90% participation. That is amazing
1: Yeah, it's it's a it's pretty unusual Um, But you know, it also takes management that sees this in a long-term way so they really have to kind of understand about uh, the importance of really kind of building this into the culture Making it part of the you know the vision for the company you know the mission statement kind of bringing all that together. So yeah. let me summarize what we've covered so far and just kind of highlight for you some of the, I think the key points. First of all, participation is critical to results. So if we don't have people participating in programs, we're not going to see the various levels of different kinds of results, all the way from attitude change up to healthcare cost changes and all the steps in between. People have lots of reasons for not participating. So we really are competing with a whole range of life decisions, pressures, points of view, um, problems, and challenges. So we have lots of reasons for people not to participate. We need to be smart at knowing uh, the major reasons for their non-participation. So we've got to be able to kind of figure that out, noodle that out. Sometimes we don't do it very explicitly, but we kind of talk to 15 people and we kind of get a sense of why. And so then we can kind of engage and then we can look for and adopt strategies that will lead to higher levels of participation. Now, if I don't know what the reasons for non-participation are, I'm probably gonna balance my efforts across a number of strategies. So I'm gonna kind of look at several of those and see where's my likely weakness. And then I'll, I'll put some effort and energy into working on that particular thing. Mm-hmm. So that's, the, that's kind of my summary, Martin, in terms of, of some of the major issues. And if I could, I'd, I'd just like to kind of give a plug for those of you who are looking for a deeper understanding of the issues that govern this whole area of worksite and workplace wellness. And if you want to go to our website, it's Chapman Institute. Uh, dot.com. Dot uh, you can see the online programs, the live webinar programs, and then some on-site. We have done some international, you know, training as well as national training. But um, we basically specialize in uh, in that in this whole process. There are four levels of certification. They're progressive. They also use case-based kind of learning, so we kind of look at real cases, and then we also are skill-based. So we're really talking about how do you get comfortable being able to know what do I need to ask this manager and how do I need to position this program and a lot of those kinds of things. We also then support a number of things once people go through the certification so that we're feeding them tools and ideas and resources to help improve the effects of their program. So at this point in time, I want to thank you, Martin, for the opportunity to share this information with your listeners.